Indeed, Father, speak to us this morning with your word by your chosen servant, O Lord. We ask, Father, that the word that is presented to us this morning will be received as it is, not the word of man, but of God. Bless the church this morning, and let all that we offer to you in worship be received as it is intended, as a as a love offering from our hearts. O oh, Father, bless the service and be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to open to the book of Romans once again this morning. Chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Chapter 6 of Romans, verses 16 through 23. This is Paul's epistle to the first century church of Rome, which he did not found. But as we find when we get to the end of the, the epistle, that he knew a number of the people there personally, and he asked that they would be blessed. And uh, so he gives this great doctrinal treatise to the church to make certain that they remain in the truths of God. And so he writes, beginning with verse 15 in chapter 6, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered." And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for your word. And the people thank you with a hearty amen this morning, Father. All right, let's turn to the word. Verse 15, he asks again, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And he gives that great answer, certainly not. In other words, you're asking the wrong question, which he made clear earlier in the, in the epistle, where he said, How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? That's the actual question you should have asked the apostle. So he asks the same question as in verse 1 with a slight twist. And what he's doing here is making a beginning to linking our justification with our sanctification, which means being set apart for a holy use. If you're truly justified by Christ, friends, you will inevitably be sanctified. The process has started. We're going to find out when we get to chapter 8 that the process didn't even start with the day of your justification. 
The process didn't even start with the day of your high school graduation. I'm saying that because I drive to church and I see, we're the proud parents of a 22. And I'm thinking, okay, that's good. It's just such a, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a cynical guy, but I'm thinking, I don't even know too many people that didn't graduate high school. But um, that's, not when your, that's not when your sanctification began or was implanted. But you were chosen before the foundation of the world. It goes back before your parents even met. We're going to find out that stupendous reality when we get to chapter 8. But we'll take it piece by piece. If you're truly justified, you will inevitably be sanctified. It's a process that began. It can't be stopped. Nothing in heaven and earth can stop it. The divine initiative of God will become ever more clear to us when we get to chapter 8 where he writes, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Why are you here? You were called. That's the answer. Whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. Notice it's past tense. That's because it has to happen. So I'm striving here not to get ahead of the unfolding argument he's making. I would love to hop ahead. But I'm going to try to take some steps here with the apostle. Let me point out that what we've said continually, your justification before God was accomplished for you by him. You didn't do it. You didn't make yourself right with God. Jesus did that on the cross. And if your justification did indeed take place, in other words, if you have been born again, Jesus' term, if you are become a new creature, Paul's term, if your old man died and your new man's being renewed day by day, you are sanctified and that is set apart. Friends, you've been cut out of the herd. You're not traveling with the herd anymore. That's the broad road that leads to death. You're on the narrow road that leads to life. You've been cut out of the herd. You've been consecrated. Just like the the holy vessels of of the tabernacle were consecrated, they were cleansed in a ritualistic way. They were set apart. They could only be used for one thing. That's who you are, the holy vessels of God. You contain the Spirit of God, and you're set apart or sanctified for His use you see. And so you've switched sides. You've swapped one master for another. Did you notice how he did that? If you obey the old master, then you're his slave. How do you know which master you belong to? The one you obey. Friends, the evidence of your justification is your obedience to God. So you've switched sides. You've swapped one master for another. Pleasing God has become pleasing to you. I hope. Offending God offends you. In fact, it should even frighten you. You've been changed, and the new person you've become delights in the law of God. You know, we heard Pastor Billy reading from Proverbs this morning about adultery. It's, oh, darn it, we can't commit adultery anymore. That's not the changed person. The changed person delights in his fidelity in the marriage union. The new person delights in it. He knows he's pleasing God. He knows he's not offending him anymore with his actions. It's unthinkable to the new creature to delight in the things that offend God. Friends, we all sin. 
But beware when you begin to delight in your sin, when you take too much pleasure in it. Now, if you answered the rhetorical question this way, well, certainly we must sin that grace may abound, or, or certainly, if there's no law to constrain us, why would we not do whatever ever we please? Then you've exposed yourself for who you, you truly are. You are slaves to the old master, to the old nature, the old, remember the word, Adamic nature? We turn the noun Adam into an adjective Adamic, right? The old Adamic nature, the natural nature. We're all born with that nature. The natural man does not know the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. He's not able to know them. The natural man has no access to God. God had to intervene on your behalf. So if you answered that way, you're still in your sins. You're sons and daughters of Adam. You've not been crucified with Christ. And so you're not risen to the new life in Christ. In short, you are not born again. Justification has not touched you. Your sins have not been paid for. For if it had, all these things would be true to you. You'd be dead to sin. You would hate sin. You would want to please your new master. And friends, the test of the authenticity of your born-again status, which is your justification before God, is whether or not you resent this teaching. People begin to resent the gospel at this point when they find out they didn't cause it to come upon themselves. It came upon them. If you do resent it, it's because your sin has blinded you to your need for justification. I'm going to try to develop that somewhat um, in the sermon this morning. It's because you don't see yourself needy as you truly are. You believe there is one righteous, and it is you. Remember what he said in chapter 3? There is none righteous, no, not one. Does that offend you? There's none righteous, no, not one. Not even me? But look at all the good things I've done. I've cast out demons in your name. I've, I've prophesied in your name. Depart from me, I never knew you, he said. So the apostle drives home the process. This whole process with another question. He says, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Obedience comes in to the scheme of things here, friends. Paul, did you ever notice Paul loves to say, do you not know? In other words... What he's saying is, has the obvious escaped you? You know, do, do you get that we're in a Romans 1 world today when you can ask a, a, a Supreme Court candidate what a woman is and there's no answer? It's like, do you not know? Friends, professing to be wise, they became fools, right? And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. We could go on, right? Go back to Romans 1. So Paul says, do you not know? Have you missed this simple reality? Have, have you not been able to conclude yet from my words that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one slaves? In other words, it ought to have been obvious by now is what he's saying. You've missed this simple reality. And the simple reality is this, your speech and your actions and your behavior and your devotions reveal to whom you belong. If you do the things that delights the devil, 
It's because you belong to him. But if you do the thing that God delights in, you belong to God. Now, I've made this point many times in my preaching. It's become, at this point in Paul's treatise, the main point. Paul uses the illustration of slavery here to speak to a culture, friends, that is quite familiar with slave status. Most everyone in Rome was a slave. Now, when we do this, if you don't have a real understanding of that culture or that historical period, I think the word slavery begins to invoke pictures of American slavery, which in some ways was much more heinous than what we're talking about. You know, Rome went about conquering nations, and when you conquer a nation, they become your slaves. They don't become your subjects because you don't want them voting in your election. You don't give them all the rights of citizens, you see. And in ancient civilizations, you had to pay for the right to become a citizen. You know, Paul was a citizen of Rome, remember? He used that status. Historians and theologians have been in a quandary over the years. How did Paul get that status? And they go back to saying his father had to have paid for it at some point. You had to pay for that status. So slave status means you're not a free man. You're you're owned by someone, maybe even just the state, you see? And most people of that time were slaves. So they were quite familiar with slavery and slave status. Perhaps that's why in verse 19, he seems almost to apologize for departing from his argument to resort to a readily understandable human situation. And so he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So the apostle, I take that as a minor insult from Paul. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, I'm dumbing down the argument so even you can understand it. I'm using a simple illustration. He's saying, if you are of God, you would do the works of God. If you're of the devil, you'd do the works of the devil. We employ the mind, friends, and that is our human reason and intellect in order that we may understand these, what have become somewhat complicated arguments of the apostle. But when useful, the preacher employs an illustration from common life. Jesus did it all the time, right? With the parables and other illustrations. And we do that to convey a point of doctrine directly to the heart of man, something that might move him emotionally. And so we'll get to it in this sermon, but a person converted to Christ is converted on every level of his personality, friends. Um, The mind, the will, and the emotions. As I've noted many times, we must be convinced of truth. What did Paul say to Timothy? Convince, rebuke, exhort, right? Preach the word, in season and out of season. Convenient or inconvenient, convince, rebuke, exhort. Those are all acceptable preaching methods. In fact, I would say they're indispensable preaching methods. So we should convince. In other words, we should reach the mind and thoughts um, of our hearers. And so we must be convinced of truth, but convinced is not the same as converted. To be convinced of the truthfulness of an argument takes only the initiative of the human mind. And there are other parts of the human personality. For the will and the emotions, we might say the psyche of the man, must also be changed. It takes more than words and human arguments. It takes an act of God upon the soul of man. It's not just you won with a clever argument. You know, I've always said, and I've told you this before, 
To be a member of a cult is not to be converted. It's just to be convinced. Someone has convinced you of something that is not true, and you believe it, and you're deceived, right? Paul said, do not be deceived. Well, friends, you can't be deceived and know it. You have to be deceived and not know it, because if you're deceived and you know you're deceived, there's another word for that. It's called stupid. You know what I mean? You would stop being deceived, wouldn't you? You say, hey, wait a minute, I'm deceived. You know, I had this happen. I had a Jehovah's Witness, a good friend. I loved her dearly. And uh, we went in, you know, the whole deity of Christ is the big argument, you know, between us and the, in the, in what we call the Christian cults, Jehovah's Witness among them. And she came in, her name was Sandy, I loved her dearly, and, and I, I just proved to her with the word of God that Jesus is, is God. I said, do you see it now? She said, yes, I do. I said, so you're going to leave that cult? She said, no, I'm going to stay. She's deceived. She's okay with being deceived. And you can use another word if you like, but I know what it really means. So I've noted, just being convinced is not the same. See, I unconvinced her of what she believed, right? But she wasn't converted. She wasn't changed from outside. She was convinced from outside, right? Um, I had a friend. He was a, he was a really good preacher. He was a, you know, had all the credentials, and he came many years ago to the church, not here, to another church, and he told us we better get busy because the Jehovah's Witnesses are converting Thousands of more people than the evangelicals are, and we better get busy. And after the sermon, I asked him, I know I've told you this before, it's the glory of a preacher to be repetitive, but I I said to him, I can tell you how many people were converted by the Jehovah's Witnesses. He said, how many? How do you know? I said, it's easy, none. They've been convinced. You can't convert someone with a lie to stay under the same master they're already under. That's just convinced of another truth in the same realm of existence you're in. You haven't been changed. You're not dead to Christ. Um, You're not dead to uh, sin and alive to God. And this truth becomes the very core and kernel of evangelism. You must be born again, the Lord said. He did not say you need a little encouragement. See, I think we think of ourselves, especially in our culture, I think we think of ourselves very highly. Remember, we're the self-esteem culture, right? Right? And I think we think, yeah, you hear people say, hey, look, I'm not perfect. It's like, you don't even have to say that to me. I mean, that's just a given. You're out there in the world. Um, But you're not in the scratch and dent pile of of history, of the human race. You're in the junk pile spiritually. There's no more spiritual use for you. The rinse cycle won't come on. You know, you're done. It's not you need a little encouragement. That's not the scriptures. It's not all you need is a little makeover. I heard one preacher say, you're headed in the wrong direction. You need to be bumped in the middle of the road again. No, it takes more than a bump. You need a head-on collision with God. That's the great thing about um, illustrations. You can, like, you know, blow them up. But, friends, that's not conversion. Being bumped in the middle is not conversion. Conversion is a rise from the ashes of death. It's a resurrection from death to life. It does not take place apart from the spiritual death of the individual. And so we have the wonderful conditional clause of Paul, if, if you died with Christ, we believe you shall also live with him. If you died. If you didn't die with Christ... The converse is true, right? Then you're not living for Christ. 
That's surely one of the most essential ifs in the New Testament. You were dead. You were made alive. There's a complete makeover of the whole spiritual makeup of the believer. Now back to his illustration. He offers to us the slavery illustration. And the concept is simple. If you obey a person, that person is your master. He's over you. And it might not be a person, friends. It might be an institution, right? You're subordinate to him or her or it. And insofar as there are only two masters in the universe, you belong to one or you belong to the other. There's only two classes. And the evidence of to whom you belong is revealed by your obedience to the demands of the one or the demands of the other. Jesus, Jesus had a lot to say on this theme. He said, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? How many people in the world, how many people in the church, friends, do you think call upon the Lord and walk right out back into their comfortable life of gross sin? I'd say a lot. How many people pray to God in their prayers and then immediately do things that offend God? So why do you call me God and do not do the things that I say? I can tell you why that is. Most people would just say, I didn't know the things that you said. I never studied them. I never went to church, right? I never utilized the church with the gifts of the Spirit because they were all there to instruct you, but you didn't do the things. You're calling him Lord, but you haven't respected him as the Lord. Matthew goes on with the example. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? Lord, have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. When you preach this way, and it's happened to me, you get accused of a works theology. Well, you're saying we have to do something. And the answer is, of course I'm not saying that. Nowhere in the scriptures does it teach us that we have to do something to gain God's favor. But once we've been justified, we have, we have a new being. We're a new creature. Old things passed away, all things are become new. And we naturally do those things that please God. I didn't put it in the notes, but I'm going to turn you to the classic passage on this very thing from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to go down to verse 8 that is very famous. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So it goes along with the justification we've been studying. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then listen what he says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are good works? Things that are in obedience to God. Those are good works. All the others are just works. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And he goes further with it. Which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. God didn't just call you into the kingdom. He already set up all the good works that he called you to do. 
Even the works were predestined. God didn't leave anything to chance, right? He didn't leave anything to chance. It's not like Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter and not knowing all the facts. God had it all set up ahead of time, right? So where was I when I gave my silly illustration? I never knew you depart from me who practice lawlessness. So again I ask, shall we sin because we're not under law? If you are his, the law of God is written on your heart. Of course you you don't sin. It's not part of who you are anymore. The quality of what we say is evaluated by what we do. We all say a lot of things. The Pharisees said they were sons of Abraham. Remember that? They said, we have one father, even God. We were not born of fornication. I didn't write the whole passage here. We have one father, even God. And Jesus tested their testimony by their works. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. There's a good test of Christianity. You pray to God, do you love Jesus Christ, his son? And they say, oh, no, I pray to a, you know, a, a God of the whole world, not just a, the Christian God. Well, there's your answer. You know, people say these things. I had a friend one time, a Catholic friend, a friend of Karen's. We loved her very much. And uh, I had first come to the Lord. I, I'd be preaching to her and to them, and I talked about Jesus one day, and she kept saying she, how much she loves Jesus, and her, she practices her faith and does all the things that she believes God would want her to do. And she really was a very good person. I'm going to get to that in the, in the sermon. But I said to her, well, let's go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus made a whip of cords and whipped the money changers out of the church. And you know what she said? Not the Jesus I know. That's where most people really are. They have their own concept of who Jesus is. Not the Jesus I know. Well, the Jesus I know not only did it, he had his servant write it down so we'd know he did it, so we wouldn't call him Lord, Lord, and not do the things that he said. We'd know the things that he said, and we'd do them. So the quality of what we say is evaluated by what we do. And so the, uh, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. There's always this dichotomy. Father, God, or the devil. Jesus merely swaps the owner in the slave analogy for the father, in the father-son analogy. In all of Scripture, spiritual reality is presented in two realms of spiritual experience. You belong either to a culture of death or a culture of life. You belong to the world or to the church. What, how did John write it in, in 1 John? He who loves the world and the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love both. You have to, you, at some point, you make your choice. You belong to Adam or to Christ. You belong to the devil or to God. We can go all the way back to Genesis and see this dichotomy unfold since the time of, time of Cain and Abel. There's always been this godly line of Abel, the rebellious line of Cain. We read, and the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. There's your answer. You can't just come to God any way you want to. There are rules on how you approach God. This theme's all throughout Scripture. He didn't respect Cain's offering. Remember Moses approached the burning bush? He said, no, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. You have to come here barefoot. There's always this regulative principle of worship throughout Scripture. And those who love God 
adhere to it. One of those regulative principles is we worship on the first day of the week. One day in seven, it's been from the beginning that way. If God were your father, you would love me. And so the Lord respected Abel's offering and not Cain's. Malachi spoke similarly of two sons of the patriarch. Very troubling verse for some who resent the teaching, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Paul will quote from that in chapter 9 of this epistle. Recall what the Lord said to Rebekah. He said, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. I don't know that that's what I'd say to a pregnant woman, but he's God, and he can do as he likes. Jesus makes this analogy regarding the impossibility of serving two masters. No one can serve two masters. There it is. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Paul picks up on these themes throughout his writings. He quotes the Malachi verse later on, as I've said. He speaks of our servitude in today's text, and he makes the point that man is always slave to one or the other, but never both. You don't have a foot in both worlds. In order to remain faithful to the slave analogy, we, also, we may also note one other, one other thing. The slave cannot free himself. Right? He's a slave. He's impotent to free himself. There's no governmental mechanism that he can free himself from his owner. He has to be freed from the outside by another, a stronger. Jesus talks about it. He said, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man, and then he'll plunder his goods? Luke takes it further. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted, and he divides the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Lloyd-Jones comments on this parable, if you will. He says, the stronger man is Jesus Christ. The strong man is guarding his house, which house you are. The devil is guarding his house. He owns you, right? Until a stronger breaks in and takes away his stronghold. So you couldn't get out on your own. You needed Christ to break in and free you. And so when the stronger comes in, all the defenses of the strong man are now useless in the presence of the stronger. Jesus is the stronger who sets the servants of the household free. Paul's message to the Ephesians again takes up this theme where we read, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Aren't you glad that's in the past tense? You were that, but the stronger man broke in 
and released you. If we go on with the Ephesians passage, but God who's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. This is a, as I said last week, the the raising of Lazarus was a great object lesson, right? The dead man can't call himself to life, neither can the spiritually dead man. And if the predestination thing begins to bother you, think of it this way. You were born once and you had no choice in the matter, right? When you're born the next time, what makes you think you get a choice there, (laughs) right? Both choices were chosen by God before your parents got together, long before, before their parents got together, before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago. And so God loved you. He told Nicodemus that. Jesus told Nicodemus that God loves you. God so loved the world, he said, right? That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved you, so he saved you. He broke in and saved you. He saved you because you could not save yourself. What slave could? What dead man could raise himself up? Not Lazarus. Lazarus wasn't knocking on the stone inside the tomb saying, raise me up. He was dead. Dead men don't call upon God. God calls upon dead men. And so he saved you because you could not save yourself. The slave is kept under guard by the strong man, and he must be extracted by violence and by blood, literally by blood. And so he is. Another illusion is this. A slave can be bought. The slave owner can exchange for a price, right? He has one master, but he may be sold to another. We read from uh, Paul to the Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's talking to the Corinthian Christians here. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And then listen to this verse, and you are not your own. Now in America, we like independence. We like to belong to ourselves. Not the Christian, friends. We're not independent. We're dependent upon God. And we know it. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body and your spirit belong to God, not to you. I told you, I saved you this suspense last week. You're either slave to one or slave to the other. Man is never a free agent. You're slave to the strong man or to the stronger man. The medium of exchange was, of course, the blood of Christ. It was paid on your behalf. It was accepted by God on high. You're set free from your former master, but you're the property now of another master. The slave analogy works. You were the slave of the devil and of sin, and your reward was death, but you were bought. You now belong to Christ, and your reward is eternal life. Verse 17 But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now there's some wonderful uh, phrases here that we really ought to single out. 
You obeyed, but you didn't just obey, did you? You obeyed from the heart. He emphasized how you obeyed. And the heart means the inner being of the man. You obeyed authentically from your heart. What did you obey? The doctrine that he's teaching. And it is to that doctrine that you were, to de- you were delivered. Freedom from sin and death begins in the mind. It begins with a message. The message here is referred to as that form of doctrine. He could have said the gospel, but he said that form of doctrine. Why? Because he's just taken six chapters to unfold the doctrine. Now, it's simple, but it's not all that simple, is it? It gets a little complicated. There's lots of words. Justification, right? Sanctification. He didn't say it yet in this epistle, but propitiation comes in there. Sacrificial. All of these things come in. So it's a form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You were taken out of this uh, compilation of thoughts and doctrine and put into this one. Friends, we are people of the book. You know who calls us that? Muhammad calls us that. The Islamic Bible, if you will, the Quran calls the Christians, the people of the book, the form of doctrine that we received. Freedom from sin and death begins in the mind. It begins with a message. The message here is the form of doctrine. In other words, you adhered to a teaching. You heard, you understood, you believed, and you were changed. And what's the nature of the change? In other words, what does it mean to genuinely become a Christian? Have you asked yourselves that lately? What does it mean to become a Christian. You were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that you were delivered to. Some translations have it slightly wrong. And they say uh, that form of doctrine that delivered you. But you were delivered to it. But you obeyed from the heart, friends. Obeyed what? Obeyed who? You obeyed the form of doctrine. I've heard it said, I've even heard it said lately, even from hearers of my preaching, that we were called a theological church. But it was a pejorative. It was like, oh yeah, we're just a church, we just preach the gospel, but you're a theological church. As though somehow you can be a church without theology. I don't know how that's done because you're delivered to a form of doctrine. Right? And it was as though our emphasis on theology was somehow a weakness in our mission, as though searching and preaching and knowing the deep things of God is just a personal preference, just an ancillary addition to our mission. You know, people like to say things like, I don't understand what happened. It was wonderful. It was spiritual. I'm saved. I can't explain it. And they think that's enough. Well, it's enough for the moment because you're all pumped up in your emotions. Maybe you got saved at a concert, right? Right? Friends, I'm all for feeling, for feeling your salvation in the emotional realm. I think that's, in fact, necessary, that the gospel has to penetrate our hearts on an emotional level. That's a wonderful thing, uh, even a necessary thing. But at some point in your uh, conversion, you must receive Christ in the mind as well. At some point in your conversion... You must be able to explain what Paul is explaining here. The Christian's not a person who despises his mind or simply feels his way through life. 
The Lord got very plain in the words of Solomon where he said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Don't just trust your feeling, feeling your way through life. I've also said to you that, um, that you may not become a Christian simply by knowing or what we call head knowledge. We talk about that, right? Well, he has the head knowledge, but he's really not living for Christ. We say that all the time, right? That's why Paul said you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Lloyd-Jones went on with this. I'm going to quote from him here. He said, in the same way, there are teachings and movements that make a direct appeal only to the will. It goes straight to the will and it stops there, Lloyd-Jones says. It is not so much concerned about the understanding and not interested at all in the emotions, but it's interested in practical results, so it concentrates on the will. There's a form of preaching that specializes in appeals to the will. He goes on, it possesses little intellectual and doctrinal content, and there's nothing about it that ever moves the emotions. By tremendous pressure... Tremendous pressure, rather, is brought to bear on the people in the realm of their wills, and they are made to decide and to do something. All the pressure is on their will, he writes. Have you ever heard preaching like this? I'm going to tell you once, many years ago in our Wednesday night Bible study, uh, one of the ladies there told a, a very sad story. All right, And she said she knew of a, a young man who was very curious about the things of God, and he went to an evangelistic meeting, and he went with his father, who was a minister. But the father was one of those ministers who didn't really know much about God. He was not a Christian. He was a nominal believer in a nominal denomination. And so there, I don't know if you have any background with that. I do. I had preachers that said things like, I don't believe in the virgin birth, and they're up in the pulpit preaching the gospel. Um, so they went to the meeting, and it was all about make this decision. It's a decision time. This is the time. Make the decision. It was a bearing on the will, on the will. And the son was moved. And he wanted to receive Christ. And he went to raise his hand. The father stopped him. And all the people in the Bible said, he went, oh, no. And I said, what's the matter with him? The kid didn't get saved. I said, you don't get saved by raising your hand. His hand inside of his spirit was waving to God, right? It's not just the practical result. He didn't get saved because you couldn't count him because he didn't raise his hand. The practical result wasn't there. That's what Lloyd-Jones is talking about here. I've seen this many times uh, in my life in Christ in the past few decades. And I've told you, they used to have the drive-in evangelical church where if you get saved by the message, you turn on your headlights, right? And one guy, of course, the fuse was out, the lights didn't come on, guy went straight to hell. <laughs> I, I jest. Uh, I made that up, that didn't happen. The, the other thing did happen. So Paul stressed the phrase, from the heart. Notice also that you did not simply obey, but rather you obeyed from the heart. You did not obey a simple command or perform a simple action. You obeyed, he writes, a form of doctrine. The operations of the Spirit have not only borne down upon you, they were revealed to you. They were explained to you in the written word. 
It's not obedience to a simple command, but obedience to a set of teachings or a form of doctrine. It's an awesome phrase. It might be the only time it's used in Scripture. You obeyed from the heart a form of doctrine. Well, don't you think it's important that you know what that form of doctrine is at some point in your spiritual walk? So the psalmist revels in teachings like this. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. And then he says, with my whole heart I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart, in the innermost being, right? That I might not sin against you, right? Because I'm remade. I'm not remade for sin. I'm remade to be a slave of righteousness. Blessed are you, says the psalmist. O Lord, with my lips I've declared all the judgments of your mouth. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Friends, a Christian is not a person who simply follows the rules. He is a person who delights in the path of righteousness. He's a person who could sing that with David and mean it. David said this elsewhere. Of the righteous man, he says, his delight is in the law of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That reminds me of the union with Christ uh, illustration Jesus gives when he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The branches get life from the vine. He's talking about the righteous now as a tree planted by rivers of living water. The living water of the word that he's meditating in. And it's feeding him. It's assuaging his thirst. Like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I want you to look at each other right now and see if anyone's leaf is withering. Any withering leaves around here? Jesus said they got to be pruned. The man who's been truly delivered from slavery to sin is a man that rejoices in the commandments of the new master. Right? They're not burdensome to us. He's a man who is planted. He's a man who has roots, and his roots go deep. He meditates in the word of his master. He was delivered because he could not deliver himself. No slave could. And by the way, no one can grasp you out of his hand. No one may snatch you. The stronger man has taken hold. The true believer is, he believed from the heart. In other words, in his innermost being, he rejoices in his deliverance. He is delivered body, soul, spirit. His mind, his heart, his emotions, his will are all in the hands of the new master, and the slave loves the master. You know, that's one of the differences of of Christianity from other cults and religions. We love our idol, if I may put it in quotes. We love the God that we idolize, the false idols out there, you follow them, you think they're wise, you think they might make you prosperous or something, but you don't love the idol, right? Nobody loved Aphrodite. They just thought she might do good things for them. They thought falsely about that, right? 
Show me another religion, another cult, another belief system where the adherent loves his God. There is no other. Friends, you might follow Buddha, but you don't love Buddha. The cultist follows the God of his choice because he cannot see that he's enslaved to a dead theology, a dead form of doctrine. He's already dead, friends. He's just waiting to be buried. Jesus said as much to Nicodemus, again, where he said, He who believes in him is not condemned. He who believes in God is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now there's a test to see if you're in Christ, and it's this. Do you love this form of doctrine? Or do you despise it? Do you resent your servitude to another master? If you love it, you belong to him. If, re- if you resent it, chances are you don't. There's no knowing the Lord Jesus Christ apart from love, for love pierces the intentions of the heart. It transcends the mind. It finds rest in the spirit of man. And so he says in verse 18, And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Still slaves, but a better kind of slave, right? To a better taskmaster. Doesn't deserve, shouldn't be called a taskmaster. It has bad connotation. Been set free, you've become slaves to righteousness. Have you used that in your evangelism? Haven't you noticed I'm a slave to righteousness? I thought it showed. You know, I'm going to tell you, um, I was <laughs> giving a little of my testimony last week in the, in the luncheon session or at the round table, and uh, I talked a lot about my 20s. I think I might have shocked a few people. <laughs> That's why I don't talk about that that much anymore. But, um, you know, when I first came to Christ, I, I was very rebellious, did all sorts of bad things. It was drinking and drugs and promiscuity and all the things, right? And all of a sudden, I come to Christ. It was real. And I came, and it was real, and I knew it was real, but no one else could see it. That was what made it so frustrating to try to tell people you've changed. You're like, no, you're just into some new thing, it'll go away. You know, Danny does this once in a while, he, he believes this, and he believes this. And then he chastises us over here, and maybe I was like that, I guess I was. Maybe I still am. So nobody could see it. And you know what happens? You start to peel away. You don't get along with your old friends anymore. I have friends that we just stopped being around. We had... No more in common. It was sort of like we, had to, we couldn't relate anymore. Old things that we did offended us now. And we told them, and that offended them, that it now offended us. Us being offended offended them. So we split up. I mean, you know, 20 years goes by. We don't even see each other's kids grow up, and now we're friends again. And they respect us for what we are, and we respect who they are. But we're not defensive anymore, and now they can see it. It's gone on. They see the young men that Karen and I reared and see there's something there. There's something real. They've, they've had me deliver their eulogies for their dead loved ones. And they called me in. It, it, there was a time when they, they ridiculed me for being a, a, a believer in Christ, much less a minister. And so for all those years, those early years, they couldn't see it. And I want to tell you this because I remember the first time somebody saw it. And I had come to the Lord, I don't know, I must have been in Christ maybe five or six years by then. We came in our 30s. Karen and I were married as unbelievers. So we came into Christ, and I was walking down Crooked Lane. As you know, already married, lived around the corner of Crooked Lane. Walked by, and there was friends of ours that were, they were Christians, Doug and Lisa Berry. They were right there on the left. I had built a, 
uh, in-law apartment for their mother, Barbara, and I'd walk by and I'd wave to them, we'd talk. And I went over one day back when we founded the school at Mullen Hill and we were talking about the school and all that was going on. And in our conversation, I mentioned my past. And I mentioned some of the things that I did and said. And they just could not see me in that light. They said, you? You did those things? This wonderful Christian man who we respect did those things? This man who founded a school we send our children to did those things? And I thought, this is the first time that it was harder for them to believe what I used to be than what I am now. And I can tell you, it was many years. My friends and family, it was so much easier for them to believe what I used to be than what I am now. They thought what I am now was just an aberration. It'll go away, you know. But um, they saw something different in me. And for the first time, I recognized it was really, it was really very moving. So sanctification becomes the proof and the evidence of your justification. See, they can't see the justification. You can't see that. It's done secretly by God, right? But you can see the sanctification, right? You can see that the person is now a different person, a slave to righteousness. I can own the, the term because Paul said it of me, and he said it of you, right? They can see the sanctification. That's the part that convinces you and other people. It's the evidence that the change has been made real in you. You think differently. You act differently than before. And this reality should always affect our evangelism. I've got this other um, illustration of this, of switching sides of slaves. And I almost don't dare to use this illustration, but I think I will. I, I, I think it will because it will be memorable. Well, Karen and I were... We went to the beach the other day. You know, we like to go down to the beach. We're down in Plymouth, and, we, and uh, we go late in the day. It was a nice, hot day at the beach, and we went kind of spur of the moment. Didn't bring anything, didn't bring any food, any drinks, just a chair. Went out and sat there, you know. And then we got hungry, and I said, well, this is the concession. Let's go up to the concession. We'll get a drink. We'll get something to eat. So we went up to the concession, and we got some fried clams, very, very overpriced, but very good. And um, we sat down at a table. It was this long table. We were just sitting at the end, husband and wife eating. The place was kind of crowded, and some other people got their stuff, and they came over, can we sit here? <laughs> you know. Now, that's, I said to them, the first thing I said, that's only in America when you ask that. You know, in America, my table. I scoped it out. Don't come anywhere near this table. <laughs> you know, pretend there's no other chairs here if you don't know me. In, in Europe, you just sit down. If it's a chair, you sit there. Um, and so they laughed at the analogy, and we got together, and we, were, and we were talking, and we were discussing things. And the woman, and they were good. They had both been married and remarried and had different, you know, kids from different, you know, people and all that. And then in, in talking, she said, well, I'm descended from several of the Mayflower, um, you know, the, the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Now, I know a lot about the Mayflower and the families and all that, as you know. I found out really quick she knew more specifics than I knew. And she really was descended from the Mayflower pilgrims, who were, in my view, some of the greatest Christians that ever walked the earth. And I only say that because of the witness and because of the thinking and because of the sacrifice and all that they endured and left to come and start a Protestant colony here uh, across the ocean. I mean, who does that? 
Well, I'll tell you who. This 102 people, and after the first year, it was only half of them left, right? And she showed that she was descended from a number of them. She said, uh, she mentioned John Howland, and uh, I mistakenly said, oh, Howland, he, um, he died on the way over. She goes, no, he didn't die. He fell overboard. He got dragged, remember? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my, my next-door neighbor was Tommy Howland growing up, but we didn't know about the pilgrims then, so he was just another kid in the neighborhood. But... Um, all of these things, and she, and she knew, she goes, no, he didn't die, he was rescued. And I said, you know, you're right. She knew more than I did about these specifics. And she showed who she was related to, and she went down the thing. And then we were, uh, you know, the conversation veered off, and she's, uh, we started talking about our sons. And uh, so I had three sons, I think they had two. And she goes, do you have any grandchildren? And we said, no, we don't. She goes, us either. She goes, and this is where... She revealed to whom she belongs. It's a little crude for Sunday morning, but she said, I don't care if he knocks up a girl and gives me a grandson. I want a grandson. After all this wonderful conversation that you belong to this family of the best Christians that ever walked the earth, now you reveal you're the son of the devil because you don't delight in the rules of legitimacy. And so right away I said, whoa, 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 we do not want to go there. We'd rather not have them come than have them come on that way. Now, things happen and you make adjustments in life. But right away, it's like, who was the real descendants of these great Christian people? Who were the real descendants of Abraham? The ones who believe as Abraham believed. Not the ones who throw around crudities in public about their own grandchildren. You know? It's like in the old mafia movies where they, where they swear on the eyes of their grandchildren and things like that. You know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm not part of that family. I'm a slave to righteousness, if you will. I've switched sides. And so you think differently when you come to Christ. You act differently than before. And this reality should always affect our evangelism. Note this, justification is not forgiveness only. You know, a lot of preaching presents the gospel as if you're just forgiven. There's more than just forgiveness, friends. It has to move on. It has to go towards repentance. What did Jesus say to the woman um, caught in adultery? He said, go and sin no more. Right? You've been blessed. Is there anyone left to stone you? No one, my Lord. I w- I'm not going to condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Right? You're forgiven, but go and sin no more. So evangelism should include the need for repentance. John the Baptist preached a, a gospel of repentance. Jesus took the same approach. We read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is open to repentant sinners saved by grace. God's works, or rather good works, do not accrue to salvation, but they are the proof of it. Right? You're not saved by them, but saved people do good works, and those are works pleasing to God. He prepared them beforehand that you should walk in them. That message ought to be included in any real gospel presentation. Your works reveal to whom you are enslaved. And you might ask, what of good moral people? who do not know the Lord. 
Now, I have a lot of illustrations on this. I'm not going to go into those this morning. I've, do, I've done that with you before. But it does seem that some people are very, very good and don't know Christ. Have you, you have seen that, right? Um, they live extraordinarily good moral lives. I have many people that are not in Christ that I trust. You know, I trust their word. I trust their righteous dealings with me, you know. Um, they do many right things. But remember that such observations reduce sin only to one of its aspects, which is the visible manifestations of sin. Such people, they don't lie. They don't murder. They don't disrupt and defile people and institutions, right? Greek philosophers spoke of virtue and were in some ways quite correct and quite eloquent in their moralizing. But they weren't Christians, Right? They were still slaves to sin. What they do not address, friends, is the sin nature. Now, I've used various illustrations over the years to explain this, but I'll say this, friends. The devil doesn't care if you're a really nice, polite sinner. He's okay with that, right? So that your sin is almost invisible. He doesn't care. He's fine with that. He doesn't find what I used to call the leave-it-to-beaver Christian. You know, those are nice little stories. The worst thing that the Cleaver boys ever did was like, you know, um, um, you know, not read the book they did the book report on or something. You know, it's like, oh, terrible. But I mean, and then they'd come home and Ward would talk to them and it would all be very nice. This is the kind of thing we're talking about here. He doesn't mind, the devil doesn't mind if you're honest in your dealings kind in your relationships, faithful in your marriages, so long as you do not dedicate your moral offerings to the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. He'll let you go along like that, thinking you've done well. Let's face it, the moral dictates of God should bring as much peace and tranquility in the lives of unbelievers as they do in believers. I have always believed this. If you are unbelievers and are faithful in your marriage, God blesses you in that. You receive blessings for that. Because God's faithful, even though you may not be. And so they're blessed. Just as God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's because he loves and because he is faithful. But I have a new illustration and I'll end with this. (laughs) Karen and I went to town meeting the other day. A group of concerned citizens with whom we agree on a particular bylaw, wanted to install a new bylaw into the town constitution. They submitted a number of voter signatures. I think it's something like 300 or something, right? So they got all the signatures. They, they put it in there. All the names of the people are on a sheet of paper, and they're given to the selectmen, and they, and they can look on it and then vote uh, on whether or not the, uh, the new bylaw suggested is constitutional, or we can have meetings about it. But the application wasn't accepted by the Board of Selectmen because the names were not certified by the clerk, he, who was the official town certifier of such things. One woman made this vociferous plea that we live in the computer age and the names could be certified in a few minutes if the board would indulge them and the matter could be easily rectified. But the clerk wasn't present, you see. And the, and the woman said, no, no problem. We have volunteers that can search and certify the names. But that wasn't acceptable because volunteers are not officially recognized to such an office. In other words, the names must be submitted only by a certified official. That's my illustration. Jesus 
is the certifier of the names. We don't get to say, but what about him? He's such a good guy. All my life I see this man. He's such a good moral man. Jesus didn't certify his name. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. He's the certifier in chief. No one comes to the Father but through me. He did a lot of good things, but he didn't come through me. You got to go through me. I got to certify the name. If it's going in the Lamb's book of life, I got to certify the name. The volunteers can't do it. The church can't do it. Only Christ can do it. Many came in my name, said I did marvelous works. But he said, depart, I never certified you. No one else may look upon the good works of his neighbor and certify him as a slave to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every good work in the kingdom of God, which is the church, must be done in honor of the Lord and not for the sake of some nebulous personal agenda. Remember the words of Isaiah who cried. We are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that this form of doctrine would be obeyed in us, that our justification would be made visible through our sanctification. O Lord, make us slaves of righteousness in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.